Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Tracy Bumgard. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawah, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa establishes an interministerial committee to be chaired by his deputy President David Mabuza overseeing the country's COVID-19 vaccine rollout program. Nearly 6,000 people from Ethiopia's volatile Tigray region have now crossed the border to remote southeastern Sudan after more than two months of fighting. And in South Africa, ESCOM, basically South Africa's MEC of Education in the country's Gauteng province, has called on ESCOM to reconsider its load reduction strategy. But first up, the news with Tracy Bumgard. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. South Africa's former former president, Jacob Zuma, will once again not appear on a commission probing suspicions of widespread corruption in the country. The move has sparked legal repercussions within the country's legal fraternity. The former South African president testified only once before the commission in July 2019. But Zuma withdrew after a few days. He argues that he was being treated as an accused and not a witness. Zuma is still under law required to respond to the subpoena of the Zondo Commission and would otherwise be committing a crime for which he can be convicted and imprisoned. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has announced an interministerial committee to help government on the rollout of the vaccine. South Africa is currently in the midst of the second wave of the coronavirus and government wants to vaccinate over 40 million people with the first batch of the vaccine doses expected later this month. Speaking during the ruling ANC party webinar on the COVID-19 pandemic, Ramaphosa said his deputy President David Mabuza will lead a committee of ministers to ensure the vaccine rollout. People are therefore correct in saying they want to know where we're going to get the vaccines, what they will cost, when they are arriving, who are the classes of people are going to get the vaccines first, and the various phases we are going to go through in the distribution of the vaccines. And it is in the light of this that we too in government are treating this matter as seriously as our people are. Today, we established an interministerial committee, which will be chaired by the deputy president to ensuring that the whole process of distribution of the vaccination process is well done. 
Malawi is set to roll out a first set of anti-coronavirus restrictions this week after the president overruled a court ban on lockdown measures to tackle a surge in cases. Unlike the rest of the continent, daily life had been unfolding normally in the southern African country since its high court barred the government from confining citizens to limit the spread of COVID-19. But Malawi, like many African states, is now grappling with an infection rise after months of relatively low infection figures. President Lazarus Chakwere late on Sunday ordered a nighttime curfew and said schools would be shut for three weeks. More than 40% of infections were detected this month alone, with a record 685 new daily cases announced on Sunday. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden has moved to dismiss a new White House decree on COVID travel rules as Donald Trump enters his final full day in office. In one of his last orders, Trump attempted to end travel bans for visitors from much of Europe and Brazil. Biden's office says now is not the time to be easing travel measures. Biden will take office at around midday on Wednesday, although much of the spotlight is on Trump's final moves, including presidential pardons. The BBC's David Willies reports. Donald Trump announced he was widening the ban on travellers to the US to include the UK and most of Europe last March. Airlines are known to have been lobbying the president to lift it. In a proclamation issued less than two days before he's due to leave office, Mr Trump suddenly announced that he was prepared to do so, only to be rebuffed by a Biden administration spokeswoman, Jen Psaki, who tweeted that instead of lifting restrictions on international travel, the incoming administration instead intended to tighten them. Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has urged senators to back his government to allow him to focus on combating the coronavirus pandemic as the Upper House of Parliament debates a motion of no confidence. If he loses the vote, Conte will have to resign. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports. After a small party withdrew from the coalition, Giuseppe Conte was forced into a confidence vote. He told senators that Italians in the grip of a health and economic crisis found parliamentary machinations completely incomprehensible, and that if politics fails the well-being of citizens, it can lead to anger and confrontation. Mr Conte is expected to win today, but possibly without an absolute majority in the Senate, which could mean an unstable government to come. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Due to industrial action at the SABC, normal programming has been interrupted. Normal programming will resume as soon as possible.
It's 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Our South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa has established an interministerial committee to be chaired by his Deputy President David Mabuza to oversee the country's COVID-19 vaccine rollout program. He was speaking during the ANC Progressive Business Forum Dialogue on the economy and the pandemic. The meeting was called, among others, to discuss vaccine selection, procurement and distribution. South Africa is planning to vaccinate 40 million people before the end of the year in an effort to achieve herd immunity. The first 1 million doses of the vaccine meant to vaccinate frontline health workers are expected in the country later this month. Ndebo Mukobo has more. South Africa is in the midst of the second wave of the coronavirus, and so far almost 38,000 people have succumbed to the pandemic. And now for Pretoria, it's a race against time to secure the much-needed and life-saving vaccines. With fears that the country might struggle to raise money to buy these vaccines, President Ramaphosa took the country into confidence on the funding of vaccine procurement. We believe that we've now reached a stage where we will be able to effectively defeat COVID-19 and the vaccine is going to be a major boost to our efforts in fighting COVID-19. Some people have raised issues about the financing thereof and uh, finance is not going to be a problem because we will be able to pay for these vaccines as we order them. He has also announced the establishment of the Interministerial Committee to deal with the rollout program of the vaccine. People are therefore correct in saying they want to know where we're going to get the vaccines, what they will cost, when they are arriving, who are the classes of people are going to get the vaccines first, and the various phases we are going to go through in the distribution of the vaccines. And it is in the light of this that we too in government are treating this matter as seriously as our people are. Today, we established an interministerial committee, which will be chaired by the deputy president to ensuring that the whole process of distribution of the vaccination process is well done. Meanwhile, briefing the ANC Progressive Business Forum on the progress in the selection and procurement of the vaccines Chief Director from the Health Department, Dr. Aquina Tulare, said they have spoken to a number of companies. The first vaccine that we have looked at is the one that is produced by the company called Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine. It has received regulatory approval in the EU and by the FDA in the US, including WHO. Subprofiling is still currently being finalized, but it's almost concluded. The other vaccine that uh, we are looking at, uh, the vaccine that is produced by AstraZeneca in partnership with the Oxford University, it has been approved in the EU and in the UK. Its efficacy is uh, 70%, and the site that we are interested in is called the Serum Institute of India. There are other vaccines that uh, we are looking at. It's Johnson & Johnson. Uh, It's a single-dose vaccine, much easier for administration and also more cost-effective. And then there's another company that uh, we just want to highlight called Moderna. It's a two-dose vaccine. Storage is at minus 20 degrees Celsius. Dr. Tulare also assured South Africans that contingency measures will be in place to deal with all the side effects of the vaccines. There were uh, some questions that related to whether we're going to be monitoring the adverse effects of vaccination. 
What I also want to indicate is that for the vaccination program, wherever we are going to be vaccinating in the sites, there will be teams of health professionals that will be ready to manage any adverse effect that may arise out of vaccination, including ensuring that there's resuscitation kits and there's an appropriate skill that can ensure that we do not subject the population to adverse effects unduly. And if ever there are adverse effects, they are managed immediately and actively. She also said that from the distribution points to vaccination sites, these vaccines will be guarded by police and soldiers. I am Tebumokobo in Johannesburg. Amid concerns COVID-19 could be killing more people now than last year, Zimbabwe is now battling with growing incidents of wildlife attacks on humans. A pack of hyenas in Shurugui near Mathringo has terrorized villages and killed livestock and injured a number of people. This is happening at a time the country is facing serious financial challenges, yet the wildlife population has more than doubled, creating a burden on the part of government. More from our correspondent, Simon Muchemwa, reporting from Harare in Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean government is battling to tame hyenas that have created mayhem in some parts of the country amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Already, the country is broke and failing to provide basic health care at a time when the coronavirus pandemic is stretching the services capacity. Meanwhile, the Zimbabwe Parks and Wildlife Management, Zimparks, has warned some stray hyenas are attacking humans, livestock, and causing serious damage in Shuruku area. While the Wildlife Department could not reveal the number of people attacked so far, it gave a detailed account of livestock that has been killed in the area. This is not the first time hyenas have gone loose and started attacking humans in some parts of the country in what others are now calling human-animal conflict for resources. Zimpak's spokesperson Tinashe Farao explained. We have uh, received the report the community in Shirugu South that there were hyenas, pack of hyenas which were prone in the area and we looked we are on the ground. Our investigations have shown that um, one calf was uh, killed and several goats. And um, we are on the ground with a view of eliminating the, the problem hyenas. This is, this is the same area where um, two months ago, I think late last year, an elderly man was killed by another pack of hyenas. Uh, which dragged him for about uh, 300 meters before eating his lower blood part. This is the same, uh, almost the same, the same problem. So we are on the ground. We will continue to assist our communities. The population of Zimbabwean wildlife is more than doubled now. And on one hand, the demand for land for human settlement is also high. With the COVID-19 lockdown, the demand for rural land has also increased as many people now feel rural life is cheaper and affordable. As humans encroach into the wildlife habitat, animals escape in search of food, hence the human-wildlife conflict. Farao explained. But these are the same problems that we've always been saying, that uh, our animals are overpopulated. And because they are overpopulated, they then move into communities in search of food, in search of water. And the land is not expanding. So these are the challenges that we are facing. I think uh, also last week we managed to capture a, a, a cheetah, which was uh, we had also killed about when they would, I think there were about two sub-adult cheetahs, which killed about uh, 27 goats. 
uh, about four or five ships by bridge. We so far we have managed to capture one cheetah and we are going to release that cheetah into Wange National Park. We are still looking for the other cheetah with the scope of capturing uh, a cheetah. With regards to cheetah, we are not going to eliminate them, but with Diana, we are going to eliminate them because you need to know that it's an extensive process to capture and translocate, and we don't have that kind of money. Meanwhile, the Zimbabwean government is at sixes and sevens as the international wildlife bodies have banned the sale of animals at a time the country is struggling to raise money for animal conservation. In 2019, the country sold more than 30 baby elephants to China, a move that was met with serious international condemnation. The country is in dire need of relocating its animals, but with the tourism sector now operating below capacity owing to the travel bans by COVID-19 internationally, funds have dwindled. Farrow explained. That, that one is not debatable. Needless to mention that we've been hit hard. We've been always been saying tourism is not the panacea to wildlife management. Tourism is not the panacea to conservation. Because now what do you do? We don't have money. We, have money. we don't get funding from central government. Understandably so because government has other social competing needs. Yeah, people are focusing, people, people are focusing on what the, people are focusing on issues. We simply need to translocate all of that's, that's, that's the way forward. And, the, you know, that, that's the only way that we can do that. Because our communities are, are affected. Looking at uh, the goats, the sheep, the cattle which are being affected or killed by these animals, these are livelihoods for our people which is affected without any benefit. And we've always been saying our people must benefit from these animals. Cape Farmer is funded by sport hunting. Sport hunting is part of tourism. No one is traveling. And people have been complaining, by the way, that we are not supposed to hunt. It's not, it's not even scientifically uh, supported that people say some of these things. In Arari, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchemwa. From Uganda comes a report that presidential election loser Bobby Wine is living under military siege at his home on the outskirts of the capital, Kampala. The siege comes four days after Yoweri Museveni was declared the winner of this year's presidential election. James Shimangula reports. Pop star and controversial Ugandan opposition politician Bobby Wine aged 38, has been living under siege since the 16th of this month when he lost to 76-year-old Yoweri Museveni in this year's closely contested presidential election. Deo Akiki, spokesman for Uganda People's Defense Force, in short UPDF, explains why Bobby Wine is under siege. It is for his better security and is for the security of the people who are around him. If you realize an area where Honorable Bobby Wayne is, there is heightened security across the entire general area. Some people are restricted from doing what they want to do at his home. Adding weight to remarks made by spokesman for Uganda People's Defense Force, Fred Enanga, spokesman for Uganda Police, said. We do have uh, our surveillance teams that are there and uh, we are trying to counter any plans of uh, violent demonstrations and uh, also mass riots. It's not that uh, Honorable Chagulanyi is under house arrest and so on and so forth. Chagulanyi, that police spokesman Fred Enanga is referring to, is one of the names for Bobby Wine. In fact, Bobby Wine's real name is Robert Chagulanyi Sentamu. And speaking in the Ugandan capital Kampala, President Yoweri Museveni 
means to no words when he spoke tersely on Bobby Wine. He's wasting his time. This may turn out to be the most cheating-free election in the 58 years of Uganda's independence. As President Museveni has said, the 2021 presidential election may, as he put it, turn out to be the most cheating-free election. However, Arias Lukwago, mayor of Kampala City, dismisses the president's assertion that 2021 presidential election may turn out to be the most cheating-free election. It is the worst election we have had in this country. That's what I would say. And it was a mockery of democracy. It was just violence and brutality. Right now, myself, I'm prepared to fight against Rigi. Narrating what happened before the siege at Bobby Wine's house started, one of his spokesmen, Matthias Mpuga, had this to say. We are aware that the military jumped over his fence and continued to litter around his compound, including using his utilities like water and power for free without his consent we demand for the immediate and unconditional release of our leader and the immediate declaration as a duly elected president of the republic the results announced do not in any way relate to the presidential elections in which he participated we therefore reject them and ask all ugandans to reject them now one of bobby wine's lawyers benjamin katana has vowed to take legal measures after Uganda People's Defense Force soldiers prevented him from entering the pop star's home. As his lawyers, we cannot watch when his rights are being violated. We would like to indicate that we are going to take up legal measures, including court action, to challenge his continued illegal detention and that of his wife. We demand that the government respects the rights of the Honorable Chagorani Sentamu. Participating in an election is not a crime. As has been said moments ago, Sentamu is Bobby Wine's surname. His full name is Robert Chagulanyi Sentamu. Meanwhile, in a related development, as Bobby Wine remains under military siege, with hundreds of local and foreign journalists pitching camp outside his home on the outskirts of Kampala, Charity Ahibisiwe, executive director of a Ugandan non-governmental organization known as the Citizen Coalition for Electoral Democracy, has disclosed the number of journalists that were intimidated and threatened during the election. We already had a hundred cases of journalists who were intimidated, who were threatened, who were assaulted for the sake of cooling down that anxiety and for trying to build reconciliation at a tense time. I think it is important that the journalists are allowed to access him. We saw a lot of tribalism being fomented on social media. We saw people talking about they come from this tribe, they have mistreated us. An election is not pronounced on election day alone. There are issues that happen from the time the roadmap is launched towards the end of campaigns. That was Charity Ahibisiwe, executive director of a Ugandan Inani governmental organization known as Citizen Coalition for Electoral Democracy. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. 
Nearly 6,000 people from Ethiopia's volatile Tigray region have now crossed the border to remote southeastern Sudan after more than two months of fighting, many with just the clothes on their backs. The emergency has created a massive protection challenge for the UN Refugee Agency in Sudan, which is doing everything it can to provide what they need, as the spokesperson Axel Bischofs tells UN News' Daniel Johnson. I've just been on a mission to the east where I have looked at the response in relation to the refugee influx from Ethiopia. Right, so we're going to talk about the refugee influx, which comes after two and a half months of fighting. What are the numbers now that you're seeing seeking shelter over the border of Sudan from Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray? So we have about 58,000 Ethiopians which have actually entered into Sudan. At the moment, the influx is between two to 500 people daily coming across the border. They're coming in through two border areas, Hamdayet and Lukti. That number coming over, two to 500 a day, that's a lot less than it was. But are you suggesting that perhaps people are just too far away from the border to get to safety across the border now? Yes, the first influx which we saw came from the villages on the western side of Tigray. At the moment, the people which we are seeing are people who have walked for some time. What we see is that maybe we have an indication that the western side has been emptied and the people who are seeking shelter now come from further away. What are they telling you? What are their needs? So, I mean, most of the people have uh, actually entered Sudan without anything. So they come with their clothes, but many, many few coming with no possessions at all. What we hear is that many come without documentation, which is also something which we are trying to address. The first influx came in relation to direct fighting. The influx which we have now, the people are telling us that it's more in relation to the fact that they don't feel safe in Tigray, not so much because of the fighting, but because they are from the Tigray area. So do you have an idea about what the level of fighting is in Tigray today? What is your access? You know, we are working on the Sudan side and our office in Addis Ababa is actually trying to gain access. Now, what we are doing is trying to relocate them from the border areas further inland. And we have two camps at the moment, which are some distance from the border where border conflict should not be a problem. Okay, but I'm just concerned that there's no access to hundreds of thousands potentially of people on the other side of uh, the border of Sudan with Ethiopia, who, who, who need essential food, water uh, and other services. Um, there's a reported rise in malnutrition from the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, and they cited bureaucratic obstacles in, in getting access to people who need it. So what's the latest you have on potentially getting help to these people in need? Yeah, I mean, as we are sitting here on the Sudan side, we are focusing on the influx which has come across the border from Ethiopia. And we also have offices in Ethiopia which are dealing with the people who have moved inside the Tigray area, but also inside Ethiopia more at large. 
So let's talk about two and a half months into this conflict in the northern region of Tigray in Ethiopia. You're trying to relocate um, tens of thousands potentially of refugees because you've got camps further inland in Sudan. Could you maybe explain what the difficulties are? Yeah, first of all, it's always a challenge to actually find land. Land is something which is owned here by individuals, but also by government. And we have been working together with the government of Sudan. We uh, got a piece of land, which uh, is an old camp site, which is called Umrakuba, where we have placed about 20,000 refugees at the moment. Here we have within, uh, I would say, a short span, been able to at least host them in tents, but also ensure water, health and food. The second site which we have, because Umrakuba has been saturated, is Teneba. It's further away than Umrakuba, and it takes about 12 to 14, sometimes 16 hours to actually have the buses leaving the border area arriving at the campsite, which therefore makes it arrival is in the middle of the night. Now, the campsite is located in a very remote area where we don't have any electricity. And we are concerned that actually offloading these amounts of people in the middle of the night with no light is something of a concern to us. We are trying to do this now in such a way that we have larger area, a rub hole set up where we host people until we have the sunlight out again and then we give them the tents which have been set up for them. Sure and final question to you Mr Bishop we are two and a half months into this conflict are refugees telling you that they are hopeful of being able to return amid this fighting between Tigrayans and the Amarans in the northern region of Ethiopia? Many of the refugees are still hopeful, but I think that what we see is that people are here for a longer term. And while we have had some people expressing hopes to return, they would like to return to the Tigray, which was there some three months ago, not to the new uh, situation which they have heard about. So... uh, we think that this will take some time. That's Axel Bishop, spokesperson for the United Nations Refugee Agency, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Distance educator Brainline says the postponement of the reopening of schools in South Africa should signify the importance to prioritize online learning as a primary method of learning in the country. This follows an announcement by the Basic Education Department that schools will now only open on the 15th of February, two weeks later than the initial opening date due to fears over the rising COVID-19 infections in the country. Brainline CEO Colleen Kronje now well, spoke to Samora Mangesi about the issue. The one thing that I was thinking about when I thought about um, all the conversations going around is what is the effect on our children? What, are the, what is the effect on the learners? They have been prepared or they were thinking about the next year. They were thinking they're going to start and now suddenly... There's a stop-start again, and I think we, it, we might experience this throughout 2021. 
but we may have stopped to several of the terms. I hope and really wish that it's not going to happen, but we must be realistic, and I think we should plan for that. And my thought was about what are the learners thinking? What's in their heart? Are they anxious? Are they happy? Are they sad? Um, And I think that is an open question. I'm thinking about their thoughts and their emotions. Now let's talk about the importance of online learning at this point and why you think it should be prioritized as the primary method of learning in South Africa. Not only the primary method, if if not the primary method, then at least an alternative or as a companion to face-to-face learning. It is understandable that one cannot do home education or homeschooling. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, both parents may work, but they may lots of circumstances why one cannot school from home. But then there should be an alternative. There should be a happy marriage, in my opinion, between face-to-face learning and online learning. And my desire is that one can get into a situation where you can smoothly move from the one into the other and then back into face-to-face so that the learners feel that there's continuity, that there is a plan going forward, there's a schedule that they can keep to, and they feel that they are safe within that environment. South African families are familiar with a more traditional classroom setup. What do you think is going to take for the government to change or introduce the other ways of learning? That is a good question to ask. I'm not quite sure what it's going to take. Maybe an ear that listens, a heart that has empathy for the situation out there, And then the desire to take action is probably what one should look at because there needs to be an address of data and data costs, access to data, access to online resources. And that is such a huge thing that we need to address. But if we can start with a little thing such as access to data and the cost of data, that will go a far way into maybe then one can look at How about each one teach one? If I have a smart device, I might have a second one. And then sharing my second one with somebody else might be a small contribution into increasing access to e-learning. That was Brainline CEO Colleen Cronier speaking to Samora Mangesi. South Africa's MEC of Education in the country's Gauteng province, Banyazali Sufi, has called on ESCOM to reconsider its load reduction strategy. The power utility regularly implements load reduction by switching off power at certain times of the day in areas where it says people generally don't pay for their services. Lesufi says while he understands the rationale behind load shedding, he fails to grasp the concept of load reduction. He says it disrupts schooling in poor areas and is targeted at the poor who don't have a voice. Lesufi says schools are struggling without electricity even though their bills are up to date. Angela Bulon reports. Last year, ESCOM introduced the concept of load reduction. The strategy is similar to load shedding but targets areas where it says most residents don't pay for electricity. As a result, even those who do pay are forced to go without power. Gauteng Education MEC, Panyazole Sufi says teaching and learning at schools that are in poor areas are also disrupted. Uh, Because that load reduction, I really believe, is targeting townships and it's targeting even people that are paid. You can't reduce 
electricity to our schools and punish us on the basis that in that locality people are not paid. Uh, I really believe that it's unfortunate, it's unfair, and that ESCOM leadership needs to revisit that element. Chairperson of the National Association of Parents and School Governance, Matlong Lakikana, says the department's e-learning program is badly affected by load reduction. He says all schools in Gauteng keep up with their utility bills, but they can't effectively teach because they often do not have electricity. Our ICT rollout is badly impacted with us now without electricity being unable uh, to conduct learning and teaching. School governing bodies we are paying electricity that there is no school that is not paying electricity to escom however escom continues to do a blanket punishment uh, with their load reduction but the reality is that uh, consultation should have prevented this but escom says it doesn't have the infrastructure to isolate schools Quoting ESCOM spokesperson Rene Lucimena says load reduction is an intervention aimed at protecting network equipment such as transformers and mini substations from repeated failure and explosions resulting from illegal connections, meter tempering and vandalism. She says load reduction has helped to significantly reduce the equipment failure rate. Based on the purpose to protect network infrastructure, in order to avoid extended power outages and persisting high load of the network, Load reduction remains a necessary intervention to stick to. There may be a significant change in the root causes of network overloading. Such customers or networks will then be excluded from the load reduction schedule. Real-time monitoring will continue to ensure that we safeguard the assets from repeated failures. That report by Angela Bulwana. The Section 59 investigation panel in South Africa has found that the medical schemes Discovery, Met Scheme and GEMS committed unfair racial discrimination towards black and Indian healthcare providers. Chairperson of the panel, Advocate uh, Tembe Gangukaitobi released the interim report. The panel was established in 2019 after complaints by doctors. Lila Magnus reports. The Section 59 investigating panel's interim report states MED scheme is 330% more likely to find black, Indian and brown healthcare providers guilty of fraud, waste and abuse. The Government Employees Medical Scheme, also known as GYMS, 80% and Discovery, 35%. They further found that black, Indian and brown psychologists and registered social workers are three times more likely to be identified as having committed fraud, waste and abusing the system by the three medical aid schemes for the period January 2012 to June 2019. Registered black, Indian and brown counsellors have the highest rate of being identified for fraud, waste and abusing the system with over 50%. Chairperson of the panel, Advocate Tembeka Ngaitobi, says they have found no evidence of deliberate unfair treatment and added the evidence shows that unfair discrimination is in the outcomes. Although fraud, waste and abuse ought to be tackled and it ought to be combated without hesitation and without equivocation. 
it is necessary that it must be done in a way that is not disproportionately impactful. In other words, innocent people should not be found guilty because the correct procedures have not been followed. The investigation shows there is zero probability that the discrimination occurred by chance, but that it was a combination of algorithms and people. What we are able to validate through these findings is that these are not isolated instances of complaints by deranged practitioners, but there is a systemic problem of uh, unfair racial discrimination in outcomes across disciplines, across schemes, and over a sustained period of time. This is data of six years. The chairperson says they do not have the power to find anyone guilty. He adds the change will have to come from the medical aid schemes themselves. Most of the reform that we are recommending must take place within the schemes themselves. And it's not affecting the regulators. Some work has already begun because we saw a drop in uh, outcomes during the lifespan of this investigation. The numbers showed a significant decline, and particularly at, uh, at discovery. James tried to stop the release of the findings on the interim report at the 11th hour by asking the High Court in Pretoria to urgently interdict the release, saying it will have a detrimental effect on them. Judge Colleen Collis, however, struck the matter off the roll, ruling there was no urgency. The chairperson invited all role players to make submissions before April this year, before they compile the final report. I am Lila Magnus in Pretoria. On the 7th of this month, South Africa's Health Minister, Dr. Zoelim Kize, announced that the country is expected to receive 1 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine from the Serum Institute of India in January and 500,000 doses in February. To bolster this cause, South Africa's health solutions business, Afrocentric, will use its network of 300 experienced and registered nurses who will travel anywhere in the country to provide a vaccination in the right conditions. For more on this issues, Ahmed Bandeka, CEO of Afrocentric Group, speaks to Zekonamiso. It certainly is very important, actually quite exciting, because uh, at least there's some light at the end of the tunnel. So what we're doing is we're extensively involved with all the na- uh, forums that are taking place with national government, as well as all the industry bodies, of getting ourselves ready to work on the next mile. The next mile being that government is working, as you know, with all of the necessary manufacturers globally to try to continue to get more stock of the vaccines into the country. The moment uh, government will procure them, the moment government procures them, we uh, will ensure that we buy what is the requisite number of stock on behalf of our medical schemes that we Mm -hmm. administer, and we will make that available across the country through our nurse network, uh, we have 3,000 nurses, by the way, just a correction to your 300. It's 3,000 okay, nurses okay. that we have um, to be able to administer the vaccination shots that will have to be done. And we will primarily get involved in the phase two uh, of the rollout, phase two being those that are comes after healthcare workers. So it will be those above 60, those with over 18 with comorbidities, essential workers, etc. 
Well, I mean, this is a, a task that uh, certainly um, uh, I can imagine will take a lot of preparation. What sort of preparation have you put in place, um, Ahmed, to, to make sure that you're adequately uh, prepared uh, for that second phase? So you see, you're absolutely right. It gets quite complicated, right? As you can imagine, uh, you know, it, all of us who in, invariably would require two uh, vaccination shots um, sure. at a prescribed interval. So we need to be able to have a system to be able to firstly make sure that you qualify in the appropriate phase. Then we need to possibly handle a booking for you to come in at the appropriate centres to get your vaccination shots. We need to educate you, leave you with the appropriate material and what symptoms to look after, etc. But then we also need to make sure that you come back within a space of two weeks or three weeks, depending upon the manufacturer that you, of vaccination you get, to come in for your second shot. Furthermore, we obviously need to report to national government exactly who got the shots so that we can keep track of how the progress we're making towards that 67% herd immunity. It gets quite complex, as you can imagine, when we start Look, getting into the details. Better you than me. My head is spinning just listening to you. <laughs> so, um, Ahmed, you know, one of the things at the moment is that there's a lot of skepticism and doubt um, uh, when it comes to uh, the vaccine. Um, this is not just in South Africa, but across across the, 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 the continent and the globe, really. Um, uh, some people, naysayers, saying, oh, you know, this is not something that I want to partake in. What 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 would be your, your message to, to encourage um, interest in the vaccine from people? Zikana, you know, we all have lived through 2019 and, and, you know, we should consider ourselves fortunate and blessed to have seen the start of 2021. There's a number of people, mm, obviously, mm. in our circles that have lost lives. And this is, our, this is the hope that we have of being able to get to a sense of normality. Uh, and the only way we get there is to get to the point of vaccine. We don't talk about things like polio, it doesn't even feature in our conversations any longer. That's courtesy of a vaccine. We have minimal number of measles. Uh, smallpox, as you know, doesn't exist even at all anymore. And these are all courtesy of the vaccination programs that were done at the time that there were outbreaks. We should deal with this in exactly the same way. We have vaccinologists. We have all the top scientists globally that have been working on finding a cure. Why would we want to question them? and listen to our friends uh, and family on YouTube and Facebook, etc. Now, let's talk about the distribution process. I think this is where a lot of interest will be. How will um, this national network of of nurses be mobilized um, in in, in the different provinces? So within our group, we have a large pharmaceutical business as well called Pharmacy Direct. Mm -hmm. To give you a, a sense of the scale, we we uh, issue out uh, about over a million chronic scripts a month that we ship out nationally mm. and get it to our members as well. So it's quite a large uh, network that we manage to facilitate in that regard. Now, as you know, there are different vaccines that we are procuring as a country, some of which has some uh, high cold chain requirements, minus 60 degrees or 70 degrees, and those that can be kept at fridge temperature. So we need to make sure we've got the necessary infrastructure to handle that stock within the appropriate cold chain. The next step, we need to make sure that we deploy it within each part of the country to make sure that they're available for the members that require them. Then we have 3,000 nurses, as you've mentioned. We need to make sure that those nurses are equipped with the appropriate PPE to keep them safe, 
they need the syringes, they need the swabs, etc., and then the administration system, the technical system to handle the interviews and bookings. And then make sure that they have enough stock for that day to handle all the appointments that are being done. Finally, in terms of the rollout, uh, right, uh, when are we expecting um, for the vaccine to arrive and the second phase um, to um, kick off? It's a difficult one because it's a very fluid environment. As you mm, can imagine, mm. uh, you know, countries across the globe are all scrambling to get their hands on vaccines. The latest information available is that the first batch arrives in February for healthcare workers. And there'll be a second batch for healthcare workers as well that follows probably late February, beginning of March. And then we're hoping from April onwards, the stock that arrives, we can start rolling out for those that are in phase two. That's the, that's the aim that government is pushing. And, and I must say, I mean, they've been working exceptionally hard trying to secure the stock. I know that there are a lot of criticisms, mm. but if we all continue to criticize, we're not going to move forward. We need to roll our sleeves up, assist and help where we can and get to that herd immunity as fast as we possibly can. That's Ahmed Bendeka, Chief Executive Officer of the Afrocentric Group, speaking to Zikonamiso. Our simple practical solutions could help bring an end to load shedding and set ESCOM on the path to successfully meeting its objective of effectively, effectively delivering electricity in South Africa. This is the thrust of the hashtag Power to the People campaign launched by the Institute of Race Relations aimed at building public pressure on Minister of Energy Gwede Mandashe to consider a range of measures that have the potential to end load shedding. For more on this, here's Herman Pretorius, IRR Head of Strategic Initiative. Well, um, since 2008, South Africans have grown used to this thing called load shedding, and, and we've sort of made it part of our daily lives to such an extent that, you know, we can make great jokes about it. And South Africans have the remarkable ability to deal with these kind of circumstances. But one thing that we really must now understand is it has reached a crisis point. Our economy is so weakened by the circumstances of COVID-19 that if we are going to try and recover from this, this 12-year joke must now end. And the problem is that South Africans instinctively know that this isn't a difficult thing to get right. This is just a matter of policy decisions by the government. And we're not asking ESCOM to do something it has never done. We are merely saying, how about we get ESCOM back to its working condition before this nonsense started 12 years ago? Mm. Now, let's talk about what the campaign then entails. Well, I think the first thing that we must acknowledge is that now is not the time to tack to one or the other ideology. It's the time to focus on solutions. And many people on the you know, capitalist free market side of the spectrum, where many of our supporters are, would often say that, you know, ESCOM has no place in the South African economy. It's, it needs to be shut down completely. And then on the left-hand side, you might have people that say, no, ESCOM is absolutely necessary, but there's a pragmatic middle to follow here to say, let's keep ESCOM as a state generator of power to make sure that all South Africans, whether they can compete in the market, um, whether they are rich enough to do so, can still have the guarantee of a power provider. But let's widen the market, let's bring in other power providers so that consumers of electricity can start having a choice 
to say that if you don't deliver the electricity reliably and I need, then I'm not going to be your customer. That will build in accountability that has for too long not been available. And um, how do those who want to then be part of this um, a very important campaign, might I add, Herman, um, do so? Well, the first thing is, and the most important thing is, get the message of power to the people out there on social media, wherever. Hashtag power to the people is something we can all unite behind. We all need to get this done. And then secondly, people are absolutely free to go onto the IRR website at irr.org.za forward slash campaigns and find there the power to the people petition that we want to use to go to Minister Montasha and say, you know what, we have solutions You might not, but the people of South Africa is now going to drag this thing out of problem and into solution. And on that point of solutions, I mean, um, uh, talk us through some of those uh, main ideas around finding a solution to this uh, um, um, ongoing problem. And um, also, if you if you can add, if you've had any sort of encounters uh, with uh, um, Gwede Mandashe uh, before now. Well, not since he has been appointed the Minister for Energy in, mm-hmm. uh, in his recent portfolio. But the Institute... Uh, the research that is the foundation of these recommendations started five years ago. So over these five years, we've had a lot of contact with government uh, all the way back from you know the Zuma years to uh, the current Ramaphosa administration. And we keep these channels of communication open. Sometimes they are more open than other times, but we've got a good relationship with many people in government to make sure that you know we can talk about solutions. So practically, it is very necessary that we give ESCOM the freedom it needs to not be a political football. We saw last year uh, in testimony to Parliament where board members said ESCOM, they were forced to do certain things to provide power to places that had accounts in arrears by political pressure. That kind of political pressure needs to be taken out of the back rooms and put in the public spotlight. So Africans deserve accountability. As I said a bit earlier, open the market. If we can have telecom, a state-owned entity, but we can also have telecom compete with Vodacom and Celsi and MTN, why can't we have a similar situation here with ESCOM, where we keep ESCOM, but we open the market so that other people can start competing. That will drive down the price and drive up the accountability. And then the last thing that is absolutely vital is appointments at ESCOM can no longer be political appointments. They must be merit-based. Now, a lot of people say, ah, well, if you are in favor of merit-based appointments, you are just against empowering black people. But that assumes that black people don't have the merit to be appointed in the first place, which I think is just nonsense. So take ESCOM out of the hands of the politicians, open it to the pressures of the consumer, and I think we will go. We are going to see great progress if we can manage this, if South Africans help us to apply this pressure. And uh, um, just uh, finally, again, that uh, website page for those who'd like to delve a little bit deeper into your um, ideas as uh, this uh, campaign um, continues. Absolutely. It is irr.org.za forward slash campaigns. Or if you're like me and you're very lazy and you Google everything, just put in power to the people, IRR, it'll get you where you need to be.
That was Herman Pretoria's head of strategic initiative at the South African Institute of Race Relations on the line speaking to Zekonamiso. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That's a wrap of Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, um, techni- producer Tracy Bumgard, and technical producer Mario Edwards, thank you for joining us. Um, from all of us here, it's goodbye. Keep safe. And uh, taking us to the top of the hour is uh, Mbongeni Ngema with a track titled Stimela Sasezola. Goodbye. Keep safe. <laughs> Some summer love.
Mama, 